Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Broadcasting from Resistance Headquarters, relentlessly fighting back against the clown dictator and his regime of deplorables. Never give up, never surrender. This is the Bob Seska Show, presented by BubbleGenius.com. From our nation's capital, it is Wednesday, August 21, 2019, and this is the interview edition of the Bob Seska Show on the Sexy Liberal Podcast Network. My guest today is a personal hero of mine, the great Carlos Alice Rocky from The Stephanie Miller Show and literally hundreds of the most popular and beloved animated TV shows and movies around. Not only is Carlos a smart and centered-as-hell political voice on the left, but he's literally voiceover royalty. He's an A-lister in an immensely competitive field. Trust me, I used to produce cartoons myself. I know these things. Meanwhile, Carlos is in post-production on a movie he wrote called Witness Infection. That's witnessinfection.com. And Rocco's Modern Life Static Cling debuted on Netflix this month with, of course, Carlos as Rocco, right? By the way, if you like what you hear, please support this show at bobseskashow.com. Okay, let's catch up with Carlos. Uh, you know, right off the bat, I ask this of a lot of my guests. How are you preserving your sanity during all of this, Carlos? You appear to be supremely centered, and that's one of the many things I admire about you. But, I mean, is that for real, or are you putting it on? How are you dealing with all of this crap? Okay, therapy, motorcycle riding, and swimming. <laughs> and... Perfect. I think it's that order. Um, and then, you know, Wednesdays are my toughest days. I'm a, I'm a dad. I have kids. We take them to class. We go to gymnastics. We go to bully busters. I, like I said, I swim my laps. But Thursday mornings, it's, you know, it's the show. It's you. And then it's Malcolm Nance. And then I'm like, I hate the world. What am I going to do? <laughs> so I go right to my therapy session. And then I go swimming. And then that seems to, like, that is the glue that keeps me together. Yeah. Because it, this is Yosarian in Catch-22. If I accept the insanity of what this world is, then I'm going to go crazy. That's right. I can't accept that Trump is president, the planet is melting, there's raging fires in the Amazon, Bolsonaro doesn't care. Hey, the kids, we got a fun birthday party to go to. Yippee! <laughs> you know, like, how do you balance that duality? Yeah. And you know what, too, uh, Carlos? 
I, I just realized when I asked you that initial question, I didn't even mention Trump. We automatically just assume that if we're if we're talking about a major disaster and how we're dealing with it, we just automatically assume, oh yeah, we're talking about Trump here. We don't even need to say his name anymore to realize that it's a uh, shit show, right? He really has it when. United States used to be the beacon to the world. It really is. It is the kindling that started the whole fire now. Yeah. You know, he's, the, he's like the, the stick full of, full of kerosene that you just light. It just lights it up on fire. And so, <laughs> yeah, there's a whole different existentialism going on now where you're like, oh, shit. Yeah. The world literally could end. This is sci-fi Philip K. Dick shit that's happening right now, man. It's like... Okay, no, it's real. It is real. Okay, pretend it's not real. Let's just go have fun with the kids and switch laps. It'll be all. It'll be all right. That's and right. And you're, you, that that voice in your head is like, well, maybe not. Yeah, I mean, I, one so, of the things I'm constantly grappling with, Carlos, is uh, whether or not we come back from this. I, I don't. I think we do. I think the pendulum does swing back, but it doesn't swing back all the way. I think there are things that have occurred over the last couple of years that have irreparably damaged the functioning of the United States. And I don't know. I mean, that's a, am I being pessimistic or is that, do you think, a, a realistic assessment of where we're going? I think you're being overly optimistic. I don't think uh, fictional Jesus himself could come back and get airtime. Not on Fox. <laughs> right. Oh, it's, man. And I'm laughing. I'm laughing to keep from crying. That's why. This guy claims he's the second coming. Look, he's too dark. I know many people have seen Jesus. He's not even speaking English. I don't know what he's, he's hanging out with whores and poor people. You know, oh literally, I used to see that on Seth Miller. There is no space for another Martin Luther King because Martin Luther King was born out of a press that was neutral mm-hmm. and media that accepted facts. Now, half the country, you couldn't even launch a Martin Luther King right now. Yeah. He's, a, he's another Omar. He's another Rashida Tlaib. He hates America. So that that's what's scary. There's irreparable cancer. And even if we get rid of the tumor that is Trump, mm-hmm. I think we have like pancreatic stage four cancer. And I, uh, you're more optimistic than me, I, which is tough because I'm a parent. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think we can. I think we can get rid of Trump. But what do you do with the left behind cancer that is? alt-right information and Breitbart and Fox and yeah. Infowars, that still is going to stay here. Mm-hmm. So That's the battle, right. I, I, although I do think if you bite the head off the snake, as it were, that we might be able to wrangle the rest a little bit easier because that, that alt-right information was around, obviously, before he got elected. Mm. And I think it's, it's, it's been made worse by his presence. So in that sense, you are... I think correct in your assessment that there is a possibility of healing once we get rid of the the figurehead and the literal head of the snake, as it were. I mean, do you think um, comedy is doing enough with regard to this administration? Obviously, there has been some pretty significant satire. I mean, we both admire James Adomian and uh, Tony Atamanik from the President yeah. Show and the you know the the performances they put out. I mean, James Adomian's Bernie Sanders is is brilliant, but I mean, Tony Atamanik's uh, exactly. Donald Trump is is just as brilliant if not more so. Uh, I go to that show, but that show was kind of canceled. I mean, they kind of that kind of went away. And I and I wonder, I mean, comedy can do so much when it comes to especially a fascist adjacent president like we're dealing with now. Oh, you know, I mean, are we doing enough with uh, with humor and satire and, and so on to uh, combat this president? 
I wish there were a thousand John Olivers and, and Trevor Noahs, mm-hmm. you know? Um, I wish that the bigger comics like a Bill Burr, I you know Bill tends to be more Joe Rogan, Jordan Peterson leaning. Yeah. I don't know. I think pretend to be tough, you know? Um, but I, I, John Oliver is my sanity. I, even more so than Bill Maher. I think Bill can be a little bit, uh, numb on what's going on in the middle East and have an opinion and, and be pretty one-sided on those kinds of things. Uh, his support of Michael, uh, not of uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson's comment about guns and how we're overreacting. I was like disappointed at that. I think mm-hmm. John Oliver, to me, I wish we had more of that type of humor because he's very disarming and charming and wonderful and knowledgeable. And uh, so I think there's some comics like Laurie Kilmartin, yeah. uh, Jackie Cashin, um, many others on uh, Sarah Silverman yep. on Twitter that are, are doing their parts to really put up the resistance. Stephanie Miller, obviously. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. But I think we can do I think there's a lot of comics that are afraid of losing their audience, you know? Mm. You know, what happened to Wanda Sykes at a, at a concert? You know, people walking out and maybe... I, I think we can always do more. I I always imagine that... what I think what we're missing is a John Lennon. You know, yeah. no, there's no... There's no guy who goes, this guy, is a, he's a wanker. He's a fucking lunatic, and and people need to get up and fucking riot. Mm-hmm. And there's no musician that that's saying that that I'm aware of. Cardi B, you know that stupid motherfucker. You know, <laughs> I love it. I love yeah. there's there's eloquence in somebody that talks like that. There's eloquence when Trump when De Niro says fuck Trump, that is supremely eloquent because mm-hmm. he's telling the truth. <laughs> yeah. there's no spin and. I think that's what's missing from our comedy and our musicians. We need more of that, you know? Yeah, yeah. In fact, you know what? You mentioned John Oliver. One of the things I love about John Oliver, and in fact, it's the same thing that I, I one of the many things that I really, really enjoy about your comedy, John Fugelsang's comedy, Frangela's comedy. You guys um, all have this in common with John Oliver insofar as it seems like you're indefatigable. You guys do not... Um, wear your uh, distress about Donald Trump on your sleeve. I mean, it's it's obviously there to some extent. You wouldn't be human if it wasn't there. But um, when yep. you're performing, it seems like, and, and you see it on John Oliver's show every damn week, the amount of energy and drive and pushing forward and not getting discouraged. And, not, and I always compare it to, and of course I love John Stewart too, but when John Stewart was yeah. on The Daily Show, you'd often see his exasperation on the show, which is nice to have that reflected back. But also, at the same time, you want uh, you want to feel as if uh, comedians are in control in a way. You know what I mean? Yeah. And uh, I think Trevor Noah has that fair, uh, fair forward type of personality. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, you do want to see that because at some point you want to entertain. Yeah. And even to a converted audience, if you get too preachy and it's just all anger, mm-hmm. it, it's not, it's not getting the message across. Yeah. And so, yeah, you have to make sure that it's a I always work in my Trump sort of right at the beginning of a show. I can just say anything. I was performing with Bill Farmer and his son awesome. and I just, you know, Bill Farmer did his Trump impression. And so naturally I went up there and I was, petty and jealous like Trump was, you know, he goes up there before me, farmer boys, you know, and he does his thing right in front of me for all I have done for the farmers. Okay. Try to give a shit about you guys, but I help you with billions of social, you know, socialized, uh, 
And so I turn it into that, and then I go into a bit, I, I go into a bit about Solus. The guy, yeah. he has no Rosebud moment. The only living memory he has is of his dad in a driveway in an Airstream trailer with a door open, and it's raining, and he's crying. He's like, Mommy, where's Daddy? And his daddy is hovering over a hooker with a piece of her arm in his mouth, and he's got that penny. <laughs> I fucked her without a condom, son. <laughs> Jesus. That's the only thing spinning in his mind. And so yeah. for me, it's a performance, mm. but I mean it and I inject it. And so they get it. It resonates. Right. Like, I'm telling you, man, this guy has no love in him. No. He's fucking evil. Right. He is Don John Dupuis Jr. from Team Foxcatcher. He's the girl Elizabeth Knowles from the inventor of... Uh, uh, the one who invented the so-called vaccination uh, blood thing in, in uh, Silicon Valley. All those people are soulless. They don't yeah. have childhood memories. And yeah. so, yes, I use visceral humor to describe what I think is in his head, but I also perform it. I, I perform it. I make it look like a Pirates of the Caribbean ride. So, yeah, I don't hold back. And then the rest of my act is what I do. So mm -hmm. there's a portion that's political it's not Trump laden, but there's that nice little section where I weave that in, and then the whole concept of religion, uh, based off a bit where a kid saw my daughter was playing with her at an audition, my younger daughter, and shouted to the lobby, "She doesn't believe in God." Oh, and I'm Jesus. like, "Well, that's good. We don't talk about it at home. It's not, you know, to me, if God God is supposed to be divine, it should not be." discovered because your parents led you into some 2,000-year-old cosplay. That's right. Here, we believe in this. You're going to wear this uniform. That's not divinity. That's your parents not giving you a choice as to how you should critically think. And so I, I, I talk about those things, but it's not manufactured. It's what I believe, but it's also, I think, funny. And well, there's something that's uh, eminently reassuring, Carlos, um, because I watch the Stephanie Miller show and I say watch the Stephanie Miller show because I, I listen on uh, free speech TV. And so I'm seeing it every day in addition to hearing it. And one of the things that's reassuring to me, even as a participant on the show, is to see how uh, confident and unflappable you are in the face of all of that. So just as a matter of observation and also as a matter of saying thank you. Thank you for that. That's why That's why I specifically bring that up. And, and along those lines, I'd be remiss, too, if I didn't ask you about Trump's prison camps and his persecution of Latinos, Latinas. Um, do you think, uh, and this is a, a phrase that I've been throwing around lately, and I just want to get your feedback on this. Do you think this is ethnic cleansing in progress with the Trump administration? Do you think he's simply trying to wipe out the existence of an entire race of people inside the United States? Boy, it, there is a there is a tinge of that just because of the man. Yeah, obviously, you know, Obama was the deporter in chief as well. Um, and there's some gray area on this. Yeah, I I think that his attitude towards it is that mm -hmm. is it factually that it hasn't encompassed that. Vaccines out of what? Out of a slap on the wrist so teachers come to this country. That portion of it is. That is cruel and vicious. And separating families, I don't believe this happened under the Obama administration, at least on purpose and or on mass. So, yeah, those two elements of it, mm -hmm. yeah. You know, what was interesting, though, there's 
I think for the left to get our message across is that we have to engage in this discussion critically. We met on a bus on the way to an LAFC game, which is decidedly Latino. We met a Mexican woman who is an immigration lawyer. Mm -hmm. And she goes, I have to tell you, as a Mexican and an immigration paralegal, I see the same stories over and over again that kids are being forced by their parents to tell from Honduras that are outright lies. So, yes. People are taking advantage of this system, and it pisses me off because it took me 10 years to do this legally. Yeah. On the other hand, she goes, I do see actual cases where people are fleeing uh, death, uh, you know, drug cartels and stuff like that. So when we discuss it on our side, we only give fuel to the right if, we only, if we're just agenda-based. If we don't address it, yes, there are some people bucking the systems, but no. We should not let people go without flu shots. We should not separate families. We mm -hmm. should not put them in crowded cages. So, yeah, yeah there is that element uh, that you're talking about. He, I don't think he regards brown people as, as equal. I don't think he ever has. When I remember he was talking to George Miller, our representative, right? And yeah. George Miller was like, I can't believe yeah. you're saying this about Native Americans. You know, the attitude that you have. But, again, that's, the, that's a Fred Trump. Fred Trump uh, byproduct of DNA. That's not a kid. Right, right. It's a machine. To me, it's all about this 1950s utopia. It's 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 an extension of typical Republican orthodoxy that if you're talking about people who are people of color, that doesn't match up with the Leave It to Beaver, Ward, and June Cleaver idea of America that you see among so many Republicans, including Donald Trump, including Fred Trump, including all of the Trump children as well that's the way they see america and in fact they're they're also uh, conveniently reflecting the bigoted ideas of of their core uh, base of voters so it, it seems like what they're trying to do ultimately is in a slow boil of the frog kind of way is to overtly kick uh, people of color out of this country while at the same time intimidating all the rest of them to maybe think twice about not even living here anymore <laughs> you know what I mean it's like if you're here and it's not just the people who happen to be here in an undocumented way like one of the questions I, I have right. for you uh, Carlos is have you ever had that conversation with your wife and your kids about the possibility that you could be mistaken for someone who was undocumented and, and inadvertently picked up by an ice raid? Well, I'm fortunate to be white in color, so yeah. we've never had that issue. Um, you know, if I was speaking Spanish, but some people might, are you a double agent? You know? <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I constantly have to remind conservatives that Spanish is a white European language. Mm. You're just confused because it's spoken by people who, are, who have brown skin. Yeah. So technically, we're on your side. Spanish is white, so right. don't panic. Um, but no, that I have not had to have that discussion. You know, I was born in New York. My parents emigrated, yeah, from Argentina yep. in the 50s. Um, you know, my dad went to British schools in Argentina, and he is one of those that said, hey, I, I did this legally. Granted, he didn't have to go under circumstances of duress and flee any sort of drug lords or military juntas that were killing people, although they were doing that in Argentina, the, the desaparecidos. But um, no, I unfortunately, because of the color of my skin, um, I, I don't. And I really think it is because of that. I've, I don't worry about that. Mm -hmm. That's good because uh, you could be completely crippled by fear. And I imagine there are a lot of 
um, Latino Americans in this country who are concerned that their name is going to get mixed up with the name of someone who happens to be undocumented or someone who happens to be on ICE's list and then they show up at the wrong door, you know, and then you end up in this protracted emergency situation where you're not even I mean it happens all the time where people are like yeah. I'm not trying to terrify you or anything like that I just always wonder because also there are people who uh, are in the Latino community who are okay with the ice raids for some reason I wonder you know because they're they're here legally they say well I say well you know it's entirely possible that ice can make mistakes and they have made mistakes i mean we saw this what that iraqi guy was picked up uh that diabetic guy who was drunk you know deported sent back to iraq where he ended up dying because he couldn't get his insulin and i imagine that's a a concern of a lot of people right now i mean even i my my actual given first name is roberto so i always get concerned a little bit and i am kind of brownish olive-ish brownish so i was wonder too i mean in that uh, meat grinder of a uh, you know an ice database of people who they might suspect is undocumented i always worry that i'm gonna get caught up in all that too and i'm not even remotely yeah. uh, latino you know you come for your liver i'm still using mine <laughs> <Doesn't matter. laughs> right 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 uh, just gonna, my first name is Car- carlos you know and i yeah. happen to speak sometimes Spanish. but yeah you're you're quite my friends from peru that are did and and that i think is a worry for them yeah you know, um, absolutely. I remember famously during the Reagan administration when there was a backlash against Japanese cars and there was a Loatian man in a bar in Detroit and they beat him up. They beat him to death that day. Wow. Jesus Christ. Yeah. Uh, oh, you, you know, also, you, you, yeah, you, you remember me- that? Yeah, I, I vaguely remember that story, but uh, refresh my memory about that. He was he was a Loatian man in a bar near Detroit. and It was during the time that, you know, don't buy American, don't buy Japanese and take it over. Jesus. Yada, yada. And, this, you know, all the hate and the rage was being uh, about, bandied about out there. And this guy got caught up in it. He's just a little stupid hick. And he was I and almost like as a Sikh. And he was in a bar. You know, you dial heads. It's like, no, I'm, I'm a Sikh. I'm American. <laughs> You know, so yeah, this was a case during the Reagan administration when there was a backlash against Japanese cars. And it's interesting. So many things mirror that Reagan. Reagan had some sugar on it, though, you know. You know, America's a great place, and, you know, you don't have to worry about debt or conserving fuel like Jimmy Carter said. You can spend (laughs) them, be great, and buy American. And he also also, uh, took back fuel efficiency and increased the speed limit. It's almost like the mirror... Trump is, is is Reagan on steroids with more of a fuck you to the to the liberals by way of Sarah Palin, you know, Trump, yeah. By way of Sarah Palin, yeah. And and I, I forgot to mention that when you said ICE and acceptance and the um, the subtle uh, let's say ethnic cleansing is all propped up by the right wing media machine. In other words, they it was always there, but now this has given them the foundation. They always had the tent poles. Yeah. Now they have the stakes and the soft soil to pound it in that. And that's, you know, that's what's more dangerous. You know, you mentioned uh, your parents immigrated here from Argentina. Are are your parents still with us? Yeah, they are. One is in El Paso with his wife and my mom is in the Bay Area and oh, in El Paso of all places. And I, I called on the day of the shooting. And fortunately, they have been to that mall before and they were fine. But yeah, they uh, they've been here since the 50s. And the joke in my act is my dad is. British, British educated, no accent at all. My mom could peel wallpaper with an H. Hello. <laughs> I love that. What did your parents do when you were my, growing my up? Parents, 
my dad was a chemical engineer at CNH at the Crockett factory. It's CNH and Crockett. It, it's a, right out of Superman, this building. It's right out of the 30s with a, a glowing CNH light. So he was a chemical engineer, and then he switched to become a librarian. My mom was a teacher and a subteacher and uh, got her degree in Berkeley in theology and became a Methodist uh, minister and actually Episcopalian first wow. and then a Methodist minister. Yeah. But I just speaking to these guys in the garage, I believe she's from Guatemala, and I'm not sure where the gentleman's from, but he's talking about, how come you don't speak Spanish? And I said, because when we were young in the 60s, <laughs> It was all about assimilation. Don't speak English to your kids because yeah. they won't be able, I mean, Spanish to your kids, they won't be able to learn English. They'll grow up with funny accents. People will make, and so they stopped. Mm -hmm. And I remember fun of the way my mom spoke. And I think it's why I got along so well with my friend Kevin, who and helped my voiceover career, because they were from Glasgow. And he would talk like this, Kevin, what are you going to do today? Are you Carlos going to go out and golf? <laughs> wow. And Kevin would say that. Nobody could understand his father, and it made him feel kind of different. I'm like, I can understand him perfectly, you know. <laughs> so even they, even white people in the 60s and 70s with a different accent were looked upon as, you know, you're not really American. Your dad's from Scotland, or certainly my mom. Your mom talks funny with a Spanish accent. Sorry, <laughs> there's people texting. I'm just trying to Jesus. engage in what's Be Be careful, goddammit. <laughs> Oh, no, this is at a stop light where, you know, the light turns green and then you got to wait four seconds for people to get up off their phone. Yes, of course. But me. I can... Yeah, but, right, right, so, right. Yeah, so that even back then, you know, I, I was white, but even the fact that my mom had a funny accent was not cool with some of the real white suburban uh, neighbors that oh, I had. Oh, I'm sure, I'm sure. You know, I, we didn't know sort of the subtle kidness of racism in my school there was one black kid we didn't know people thought my mom's accent was funny until you move away yeah and you start to rekindle with these guys on facebook that are oh you believe that in high school i just was a jock i played football and ran track and i, I literally was the all-american boy award at my senior banquet i won that award wow and so to me life was fine i didn't see all the hidden racism it was less overt yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, what um, uh, sort of sparked your interest in performing? I mean, when did you get the performing bug? I mean, were you doing uh, impressions at a young age, or were, were your parents yeah. particularly funny? I mean, how did you end up getting that bug? My mom is very gregarious, very uh, out there, funny. My dad more reserved, more British. Mm -hmm. And I think the bug started early. Like I said, having friends uh, who had neighbor and uncle Danny, and that's your legs over. It was a plethora of characters for me to just to glom onto, and I always wanted attention, you know, I'm small, I'm short, how do you get girls, how do you be funny, and and then in college, I had a professor named Ernie Olson, and uh, teaching recreation and leisure studies, and I thought, okay, I'm going to work at a community center, I'm going to work at a health club, I might work at a ski resort, this is good, and he said, you're pretty funny, you want to do some mime, and I said, I'll try some mime, mm. which was terrifying, you know, because <laughs> we went to the student union and tried to do mime sketches, I'm like, I'm trying to study, idiot! <laughs> <laughs> it's so embarrassing. I did mime in restaurants. You know, I'm trying to order my food. And then I did stand-up comedy, and I got nervous, and I got in a comedy duo called, we were called The Brouhaha with a guy named Mark Frazee. Mm -hmm. and, uh, Mark Fraser. And he's in Alabama now. And we did some comedy at 12th and K in Sacramento. And that's where Brian, I met Brian Posehn and a couple of other people. 
and that was 85, 86. And then I started working on my own uh, because the duo wasn't working out. And then I moved to San Francisco with another comedian in 1987. And I was working at two different health clubs, so I was still using my major. Uh, and uh, working comedy at night. And uh, 87, 89 is when I started to go on the road as a comic, and then, then that was it. So it just sort of happened. How did you end up uh, breaking into uh, Hollywood? How did you end up uh, cracking that nut, so to speak? It's not the easiest thing in the world. I mean, I don't know how many people realize this, but working in voiceovers is immensely competitive, especially with uh, this current slate of streaming channels and obviously all the cartoon channels and so on. Was that a difficult slog or was it fairly easy for you? Well, here's what happened in 1993, and it was a topic of our discussion when I was on what the fuck with Mark Maron, because he was still like, man, how did you win that? How did you win that competition? It was me, Mark Maron, Patton Oswald, a guy named Rick. Oh, what was Rick's last name from Denver? Another guy, Stephen B. And I won, um, I won, I won the competition that year. So I had 10 grand in 1993. Rocco just went to series. I put some of that money into a house. And I said, I'm moving to L.A. I won the comedy competition. I was literally, if you were, did you ever see the movie um, with Kevin Bacon? Why am I forgetting? Uh, the Big Picture, which was one of Christopher Guest's first films. It was non-improv. It's called The Big Picture. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, I know uh, that movie, yeah. Kevin Bacon wins the college directing thing, and he's the flavor of the month. And that's what happened to me. I literally, back in the day, I win the San Francisco comedy competition at the Marines Memorial Theater, and the next morning, there were literally 40 messages from managers in L.A. William Morris, and I'm like, I was literally the flavor of the month. So with that in hand, with Rocco and winning the competition, I go to L.A., I get picked up by William Morris, I get Helen Hunt's manager, Connie Tavel, and I, the, all the suits are taking me out for showcases. They're pitching. I remember talking to our Rob Reiner at Castle Rock about a sitcom pitch that Gordon Hunt had written for me. Mm-hmm. You know, I was going to be it. And then a month went by and bye-bye, done. Too green. <laughs> wow. And then I landed the Steph Miller show on UPN as an irregular regular, as one of the sketch performers. And Stephanie will tell you that we did everything. I did Johnny Carson, Charles Manson, Woody Allen. I think I did Maury Amsterdam. We just, <laughs> was you know, the, I, the most fun to do. I love doing Maury Amsterdam. That is an endlessly entertaining one. <laughs> so... I was on Stephanie's show. I was on the Paramount lot. I had my own car for the Windsor Gate. I'm working out at Paramount. I, I think I've made it. And Stephanie will tell you that show lasted 13 weeks. It got canceled. And then I was like, oh, crap. So back out on the road as a comic again. Oh, so you, were on, you, were, on, you were on Stephanie's TV show. Yeah, on UPN. Oh, my God. Okay, great. So, Because I, I thought you were talking about her radio show, but this was actually, you got your start with her um, on television, right? I mean, that was the that was the first yeah. connection, right? Correct. Okay, gotcha. So I get my start on TV, and that show lasts 13 weeks, and we're all like the who's in front of the Christmas tree on the Paramount lot after we got fired, just pretending it was going to be okay. <laughs> uh, if you ever remember the season broadcast news, if, there, if there's anything I can do for you, you can hurry up and die. <laughs> right, yes. I love that line. Yes. So, we, got, we, got, we got fired, and that was, not, that was leading into the year of 1996. Mm-hmm. And so, oh, I got on the road as a comic again. 
So here we go. And Stephanie said, oh, I have a radio show now at KBC. Would you like to be a part of it? And we do sketches. We write sketches. Chris was the engineer. Yeah. And uh, you can be my voice guy, uh, just like you were on the show. We'll do all kinds of characters. And I said, yes. And it was like paying me like a thousand. I went every day. I think it was paying me a thousand bucks a week. And it was uh, right on La Cienega in Fairfax where they come together. It's no longer there at KBC radio. And I would go at four o'clock. We would tape sketches from uh, four thirty. We would tape sketches from five, right up, right up until seven. Chris would edit them on, on the spot. I used to fall asleep in the, in the, in the screeners calling room on a pad of envelopes. <laughs> and, and as Chris would say on the show, he would go wakey, wakey, hands off, snakey time for sketches. So <laughs> wow. we would make a bunch of sketches. And then that kept me in town for the Taco Bell edition. But at the same time, I was still doing Rocco and Cat Dog and some other things. So voiceover was my launch into Hollywood. And then I got the Taco Bell dog. Next thing you know, I'm doing all this stuff. I'm on Hollywood Squares. Taco Bell dog ends in 2000. I go back out on the road again uh, using my Taco Bell fame to, to sell seats. And in 2001, uh, uh, actually Christmas of 2000, I auditioned for a sketch show with Ben, Tom, and Carrie called the ugly Americans. It was just a regular sketch show. I go to a network, I go to studio, I get the job. We do a table read, um, with, uh, Gail Berman. They say, no, Tom gets us together and says, we're going to do a show making fun of cops, go home, think about characters. They fly in Beth McCarthy, director from SNL. We make the, the original pilot 2001, actually in, uh, December, because uh, it was right after 9-11. We filmed a pilot in San Pedro called Reno 911. Wow. Fox passed on it. And then in 2003, Jim Sharp was at Comedy Central asking Ben, Tom, and Kerry, what do you got? We got this show called Reno 911. Let's take a look. Boom, we want to buy it. We're going to series. Holy that shit. That is the long-winded <laughs> of me getting into that's incredible. You know, you mentioned the uh, Taco Bell Chihuahua. I have two separate connections to the Taco Bell Chihuahua. I know the guy who in- invented the character. And, of course, I know you, the voice of the character. So, like I said, it's very, very strange. Um, the creator of the character, a guy named uh, Joe Shields, he's also known as Joe Cartoon. And I don't know if you know this about me, Carlos, but I, I ran an animation studio for uh, 15 years, and I've, I've done all kinds of shit really? in cartoons. Yeah, yeah. And uh, including voices, wow. including animation direction and so on. So I have lots of connections. And so you're mentioning all these shows and, and people, and they're all ringing bells to me. But I know this guy named Joe Cartoon who picked the idea of doing a chihuahua as a mascot for Taco Bell to Taco Bell. And then, of course, Taco Bell uh, rejected the idea and then ended up using it anyway. So he was from Michigan, right? What's that? Yeah, because he was was he part of the Michigan ad company then that that, that did it first? Yes. Taco Bell said no, and then they went to try a day. Yes, that's exactly it. And he ended up suing Taco Bell, yeah. and I think they settled for an enormous what? amount of money, obviously, because of the popularity of the character but on top of all that it had to have been huge for your career wasn't it um to have that level of visibility because everyone knew that character i mean literally everybody was like he's bigger than mickey mouse for god's sake i was talking to sugar ray leonard in the green room of hollywood squares and like if not for that chihuahua i never have a conversation with sugar ray leonard <laughs> you know that's so, awesome. so so sugar ray leonard is asking you about the taco bell chihuahua that's incredible really yeah 
And th- yes, and then I show up for a voiceover gig, I remember, and Adam West is in there. My brother and I literally had a wooden crib with metal wheels on it that we turned over and painted bats on because we loved that Batman show. I show up, Adam West is there. I go, hi, and he goes, I guess we'll be eating tacos for lunch today. No churro taco that you know, is just was, too awesome. That is just incredible. I mean, I don't know if people re- who listen to the Stephanie Miller show uh, fully realize how much of an A-lister you are, especially when it comes to voices. In oh. fact, I was just skimming your filmography before we uh, talked today, and I, I had no idea where to even begin listing your biggest performances. I mean, you've got Batman animated movies. You've got... Toy Story 3, Happy Feet 1 and 2, the SpongeBob movie, Minions, Phineas and Ferb, Cat Dog, Wally, Fairly Odd Parents, Rocco's Modern Life, as you were mentioning before, Cow and Chicken, Camp Laszlo. I mean, many of these shows I I recognize from watching them firsthand myself, um, having been in that uh, in the the periphery of that uh, industry for a good long time. So it's 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 striking to me. I mean, just the sheer volume, Archer, Tiny Toons, Scooby-Doo, Rick and Morty. I mean, these are um, immense accomplishments, and I just want to name a few of them to give us a full appreciation of the fact that you're so much more than the Wednesday sit-in guest on the Stephanie Miller Show, that you are literally an A-lister in this industry, which is, like I said before, almost impossible to break into. And you've got a resume that's longer than um, Academy Award winners in many respects, right? (laughs) Well, thank you. Yeah, I've, I've kept going. And, and I will say it's always continuing to be a battle to get, you know, directors to keep hiring you. And yeah. we, we constantly reinvest themselves. So, yeah, thank you. I'm 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 uh, finally sort of realizing that, yeah, I have done a large body, body of work and the crossover is starting to happen at cons where they do know me. But I'm getting Stephanie Miller fans that come up now at <laughs> cons and like, hey, thank you. I never knew you did this. Or I still get people at cons that will come up and go, wait a minute. Rocco was Garcia from Reno 911. I'm like, yeah, I've been putting it out there. <laughs> so, so people don't realize you constantly in this business, as you know, have to show people what you can do. Right. And you never take it for. So I'm doing a lot more live tapings to to get people that are booking things. And yeah, I've done a large body work, but the you know the journey continues. I, I still in my voiceover booth. There's stacks of copy, and most of it is jobs I don't get. You know, you just keep auditioning. You just keep putting yourself out there publicly, uh, doing projects. I'm doing a play coming up. You know, I'm stretching myself. So I, I wrote my own movie. It's called Witness Infection. Fans, you can go to witnessinfection.com and talk about voiceover elite. Myself, Tara Strong, Maurice LaMarche, Gary Anthony Williams, and TV elite, film elite, Aaron Hayes is in it. We're in post. It'll be coming out soon, but... You know, we that's part of me still trying to keep busy, still trying to build a voiceover resume. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm working on a couple things coming out, which we can plug at the end. But but thank you. Yeah, I always felt that about Jim Ward. Jim Ward, you know, people really took it for granted how talented Jim was. Right. You know, he suddenly became this guy that was Stephanie's sort of voice guy. But I was like, no, Jim is really good. Yeah, in fact, you really, know, the, really good. the first time I ever sat in on the Stephanie Miller show in studio – I was sitting right next to Jim Ward, and I'm 100% honest when I say this, that I was far more intimidated by sitting next to Jim Ward than I was by Chris, Travis, and Stephanie. It's an an incredible thing to get to uh, 
to uh, work up close with someone who is such a, a master at doing uh, all kinds of voices. And things that, the, one of the things I admire most about both of you, uh, you and Jim Ward each, is your ability to do uh, dialects, which is something that escapes me other than some you know regional American dialects. You were doing an Irish brogue before, and that's one that I can never, ever wrap my mouth around for some reason. So, I mean, everything from yeah. your your resumes all the way down to the kinds of uh, voices you perform, too. Uh, I just I find myself doing the, the Wayne's World. I'm not worthy <laughs> kind of thing at your at your footsteps. Um, are there any roles that you uh, turn down? This is a fairly typical question, but are there roles that you turn down that you regretted turning down ever? There's one that I regret. I had to turn out recently because the contract stuff wasn't working out. It wasn't fair. And some of my other fellow voice actors ended up taking it. Mm-hmm. I think Mark Hamill and I and myself passed on this particular series. And in the end, I think I did the right thing. But there's part of me that's like, ah, I wish I could have done it because I could have branched out. But yeah, that really is the only other one. But no, I'm not one to turn down work unless it's non-union and it's no good, uh, of which then I don't remember what they were. But uh, no, I basically will go for every role if it's union sanctioned and everything's cool. But recently, I did have to turn down a role that was essentially offered to me. And that that hurt. I was like, ah, shoot, that was X amount of money that could have been in my pocket. But it was it was the right thing to do, even though some of my fellow voice actors like did. And I'm like, ah, crap. Are there roles that you you go out for that you just can't wrap your head around? I mean, I guess the the point of the question is, what are your limitations as far as voices go? I mean, are there areas where you really uh, try to steer clear of as far as doing voices? Yeah, no. uh, Well, I did recently had an audition for uh, the voice of a snow monkey. And (laughs) and I said, let me look at how snow monkeys sound. And the actual snow monkeys, I went, oh, just give that to my friend D. Baker. This is not my fort. You know, this is Fred Tattashore, Frank Welker. This is D. Baker territory. So that I can't wrap my head around, no matter how hard I practice. Snow monkeys, you know, check. One, yeah, check them out online. They're really yeah. high-pitched and screechy. It's not your, ooh, ooh, ah, ah. No, that ain't it. Right, right. They want realism. <laughs> the one thing I'm proud of is that I was offered the chance to audition uh, in 2001 for sound alike stuff for Mike Wazowski. And I didn't think I had it. And this one guy, Brian Monroe, he said, no, you're a tenor. You're right there. Believe me. And so I took the movie, forget about Paris on a VCR. And I re- rewind forward, rewind forward. I start moving. I go, Hey, I'm getting pretty close. Now switch it over to Wazowski. Get up higher. And I booked the job. And then some 60 hours later, and most recently kingdom hearts three, where I, I get to play Mike Wazowski. I am not because that's Billy Crystal. Uh, I fooled a lot of people. They're like, oh, I thought that was Billy. Nope, it was me. So that was one where I could wrap my head around. There's other sound alikes that there's a guy named Ross Marquand and Jim Meskimen that, you know, Ross can do uh, Brad Pitt. Jim oh Meskimen. my God. How do you, how the hell do you wrap your head around doing Brad Pitt? It seems immensely subtle, just, don't you think? But look him up, Ross Marquand from Walking Dead, mm. and Jim Meskimen in 2014 did a tribute to Robin Williams after his death. Mm. That was a heartfelt, non-comical, non-broad Robin Williams impression of saying thank you to the world. And it was scary how good Jim Meskimen is. You know, he and guys like James Adomia, but I mean, 
So there's guys that when I know that they're in the swimming pool, I went, no, that's the deep end for them. I, I'll, I'll try. <laughs> I'm not expecting to get this because my limitations are, are, are going to be uh, present when you hear these other performers. But other than that, I will go for anything. I'll go for it. What's you one know, of the... most recently I got a Oh, you're saying most recently? I got a job on a, uh, it's a cartoon, it's a Filipino folk, folklore. And because I went to Ceremonti Center, I lived in San Francisco, I had a uh, professor in college named Ediberto Cajucam. This is where I learned, and the vowel sounds are very similar to Spanish, that I'm going to, to try to do the show, and they hired me. Because I, I, I was what I was listening to this morning, because I listened to a Filipino dialect to practice it, Wow. And saying, if I want to get this right, I got to study it. I mean, I can almost do it. But so there's another thing of where I didn't limit myself. I'm like, well, I'm not Filipino, but I'm going to go for it. So, yeah, just and, and I got it. Just incredible. Incredible. Is there a voice that you just can't stop doing? Like something you're walking around the house and you're entertaining your kids with? I mean, for example, like I do Alex Jones and I can do Alex Jones all day long. I can do Alex Jones eating dinner at a restaurant, Alex Jones making spaghetti in the kitchen. Is there a voice that you do that it just it gets into your head and you just can't stop doing it? And finally, your family has to go. All right, Carlos, that's enough. Outside of doing Trump all the time, um, <laughs> gosh, I'm trying to think. You know, there's bedtime stories that I play with three different dolls, and and there's uh, what's her name, Lulu. Lulu, Archie, and that is grating. They don't want to hear that stuff. But I'm trying to think of like there might be. You know, I might walk around doing the the Glasgow Scottish thing. Oh, for fuck's sake! Why yeah. don't you just piss off and die? Face and make your ass jealous. So there might be something like that. I, I do say bloody hell without hes- hesitation because that just rolls off the tongue. Yeah. Bloody fucking yeah. hell. Um, but I, I, I can't think of anything that I really have to swim in all the time. Yeah. But, um, well, do you, I mean, do you find yourself, as you're watching TV with your wife or something like that, do you find yourself like mocking whoever you're seeing on television by doing the voice at the same time? I mean, I'm, obviously we all do that with Trump. I do that with Trump every goddamn night, where as he's talking on television, I'm doing his voice back yeah. at him, but in a very malicious way <laughs> to vent, so yeah. to speak. Well, I'm not vicious, but Dave Navarro, because we watch Ink Master, and I, I, he always goes, five, four, three, two, no more ink, machines down, no more ink. But he, when he says five, and I always do it with him, and my wife goes, stop, I can't help it. That's so obscure that you're actually, you're doing a Dave yeah. Navarro impression. That is, again, that's all the caliber of that guy you were saying who does Brad Pitt. I mean... <laughs> to do that voice it's like i used to do the voice of the guy who used to be on man versus food adam richman and and you know again oh, it's wow. another subtle stupid voice that no one really ever knows but it's entertaining to me at least uh and so it seems like that's about the same where i don't think anyone knows what dave navarro sounds like when he's talking unless they're watching that show right <laughs> so yeah, funny you do not have what it takes to be ink master please pack your machine and head out. Oh, God. But he does. He holds onto the eye too long at five. 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 <laughs> four. Uh, it bugs me, so I just do it every time it pisses my wife. 
Um, re- just real quick, and this actually loops back into your time on the Stephanie Miller show, um, which I don't think people really appreciate how much improv goes on during a typical uh, Stephanie Miller show. Uh, it's basically three hours of ongoing improv. Um, did that prepare you at all for the improv on Reno 911? I think, yeah, it all does. Absolutely. And Stephanie's super quick. I mean, she's lightning fast. Um, absolutely. All those experiences of stand-up comedy, improv classes, being on Stephanie, having to fill three hours and banter back and forth. I used to do that on... Um, Oh my gosh, Alex Bennett in San Francisco. You know, we learned very on early on that if you yeah. had to fill a couple of hours of time as a comic, you couldn't just come in with a couple of lines. So, all that stuff helped me for Reno. And then Reno essentially became paint by the numbers improv. You know, you knew your character, you knew you were going to say no to the suspect, and then engage in something that was going to end up really dangerously shitty to everybody involved. And so, you know, it, it became easy to to perform within the system as opposed to doing what they call an Armando, which is a real true long form show at the ground length. That mm. is much more difficult. It's much more organic than Reno became. But I will say that we knew our characters so well on Reno that we made it look easy. I mean, you got a bunch of people there from the state, right? I mean, was that intimidating going in um, where there was almost like an established improv troupe that kind of formed the basis for it? Or uh, did you feel comfortable right off the bat uh, just working your way into uh, that ensemble? Well, the, first of all, they were very gracious. And second of all, I didn't grow up watching the state. So there was, there, there was no familiarity for me to be intimidated. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't know who Ben, Tom and Kerry were. And then I went back and watched uh, Viva Variety, and I was like, oh, it's these guys. Holy shit, they're good. <laughs> but, no, right away, they asked us questions the first day on set. They embraced our characters. They, they let me have a really amazing run for not being part of the state. They really trusted what Cedric and Nisi and Wendy and I could do. Uh, and so, you know, all credit to them. They, they really let us run with it, you know, so we got fortunate. So yeah. I wasn't intimidated because I hadn't seen the previous work. Um, one last question for you, Carlos, before we wrap up here. Um, can you give us a little ham, please? Ham. I don't know if it resonates so much in my car, but uh, every once in a while, I like to sit down to a nice cold Coors and a big old slab of ham. <laughs> you know, he does a speech. Sam Elliott does a speech in the, Sam Elliott does a speech in the movie Gettysburg that you have to see it. You have to go to YouTube and see his speech in Gettysburg where it's just it's classic classic mustache rides uh Sam Elliott right there. Our producer Sean has a friend who made a movie called The Man Who Killed Hitler and Then Killed the Bigfoot with Sam Elliott. Yeah. And there's great wonderful in there but go back and watch Lifeguard, the movie Lifeguard. There's a scene where Sam Sam Elliot, without his husky voice, goes into a bar before his prom with Ann Archer and goes, I'll have a Coors. And it's way before his voice got deeper. <laughs> oh, my so God. I, I've got to go hear uh, Sam Elliott's voice before it became deep. That's in, that's an incredible find. I, I got to check. <laughs> I got to check that one out. All right, my friend, I will see you again uh, Wednesday morning on The Stephanie Miller Show. Uh, very much looking forward to it, as I always do. And and thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. I can't wait to have you back on again. Thanks, Bob. Thanks for your articles and your resistance and all that you write. We need it. So I thank you back at you. All right. Take care, my friend. We'll see you soon. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
Hey, this is Lee Papa, host of AGD Podcast with the Rude Pundit. If you enjoyed this episode, you'll love my show, where every week I talk about politics and interview funny, fascinating, and filthy people. Find it at sexyliberal.com and on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, and everywhere else you get your podcasts.